Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the Talkie Bit. We have been away for a bit, and some of those travels have brought me into spaces where humans making and evolving religions and then making art and architecture that reflects that project of making religion has left some enduring artifacts. Some of those stories might come up along the way, but but now what I want to say to this community, which helps make that exploration and learning possible for me, is thank you, just from my heart. Thank you. Thank you for being a place that doesn't assign value to me or to one another simply on the basis of how much labor a body anybody, in this case my body in particular, can produce or can bear, that we have value beyond that and outside of that. When I describe the table to other people, one of the things that I'm often reminded of and struggle to articulate, and, and I end up sort of saying something like, you should just come and see, is, um, is how remarkably thoughtful and open-hearted this community is, and also how capable we are of sharing our experiences and our perspectives with one another. Now, like a talky bit is one expression of that sharing of those kinds of things, of course, but that's only a particular and easily seen expression of it. All the conversations, whether they happen in this space or in our personal on, um, gathered space or elsewhere, these the acts of kindness, the reaching out, the listening to one another, these are all ways that we contribute to this being a place a community of relative safety, of mutual care, a place where we can, among other things, experience, even if it's for a brief time, some version of rest. And this is this is one of the reasons why I want to always be careful about how and when and where we articulate the needs of the community in terms of participation or volunteering or, or giving or whatever it is that helps to keep a community functioning, those things are important, and there are ways in which we can share ourselves with one another. We'll come to another vantage point on that later this morning. But they can also end up being something that feels like just a treadmill of demand, uh, at which point, you know, for many people, um, that can make a community feel like a place you just you don't want to be because, uh, because something is always being asked of you as opposed to offered. We can't make an offering with a, an offerer right? And so those pieces go together. Sometimes there's some tension there. But um, I want to always take care with that uh, in our context because of that, because I want this to be a place where people can feel like there's there's room to rest and to be still and to be open and receptive and um, to, to feel safe or at least safer. Personally, I just want to say I'm very grateful to be part of this and I'm really glad to be back. I've missed you all. So, way back in early July, we had a talkie bit, and that talkie bit uh, introduced us to the work of someone named Tricia Hersey. 
Now, for those of us who might have missed it, who or who were there but have forgotten it, or who've had it sort of wonderfully displaced by all the other fascinating and challenging things that have been offered to the community in the meantime, just a small review. Hersey is a black artist, uh, a poet, theologian, community organizer. She is the founder of something called the Knapp Ministry. Uh, she's also, which is just sort of a fascinating thing in itself, she's also the author of a book um, that I've been reading called Rest is Resistance. She calls that book a manifesto, and it is. It's a, it's a summons. It's a call to a call to arms to rest, which might sound a little oxymoronic, but it's a summons to rest as a way to resist many of the things that are deeply toxic and destructive in our culture, things that keep us mired in what Hersey calls grind culture, uh, and that undermine and even attempt to undo the notion that spirit is a life-giving and life-guiding essential in the human reality, to to, to despirit us. Uh, and leave us dispirited so that we're more vulnerable to other agendas. Now, one of the things that I said about my experience of Hersey's ideas is that they behave for me like slow curve concepts, ideas that could take a lifetime to even begin to learn about, particularly from my, you know, relatively privileged vantage point in the world. Uh, Hersey, as a black woman, uh, brings that lens to all of this conversation, and it's a very different lens than mine. But these are ideas that take a lifetime to start to learn about. They're ones we practice in little bits and pieces over a long time, but they are so powerful and so so radically world-altering that if enough people come around some of these, I, I believe that the world would change uh, for the better as a result. Not something I say about every idea I explore, um, I expect. The more time that I have spent with Hersey's ideas, the deeper that feeling that these could change a lot has become. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of encountering something so utterly foreign, uh, this has happened to me sometimes when I travel, but so deeply new or unknown to me or to you that it just utterly stops us in our tracks. And for me, those sorts of experiences often come in through my senses. They're a sound, um, so this might not be about a different culture, even just about a new sound, and especially in music for me. It might be a piece of art, it might be a smell, a flavor, it's not unusual, a sensation, something that comes in through my body but that lodges in my imagination and that brings me up short because, at least initially, because my previous experience doesn't have a readily accessible frame of reference for it. It's new. And our, our brains have to do a little extra work uh, with those things, among other things. This keeps happening to me when I'm reading Hersey. The words on the page are familiar. I can, I can read them well enough. Some of the ideas are even familiar, like sitting down at a table to eat is familiar, but when I take what is placed in front of me and I smell it, I chew it, I taste it, I realize that this is unlike anything that I'm familiar with. It might be assembled from the familiar, but it's put together in ways that are not familiar. And that can be a disconcerting experience. And I don't want to press the metaphor too hard, but if, if I stay with the food idea for a moment, when I have an experience like that, I don't always want to keep chewing. And I certainly might not be at all inclined to swallow. I might even feel something decidedly unpleasant, the sorts of sensations that make me want to leave the table, leave the room before my reaction embarrasses me or insults my host. Hersey talks about and causes me to think about rest 
in ways that judge much of my reality and leave it wanting, that make it clear to me that my lived experience has some enormous gaps in it, some blank spots, and also some places where I've been taught values that keep me on a path that is self and other destructive while also being able to feel like I'm doing the right thing or the best thing or even the only thing that it is possible to do. That's a problem. <laughs> when the thing that I'm doing feels like this is this is the best this is the best life and I encounter an idea that causes me to go no it is not. There's something really wrong with this. Yeah, mouthful. Now what do I do? Some of the research that I've been doing on the topic of rest, particularly the sleep aspect of rest, which we talked about back in July a bit, have reminded me that constantly living in a state of insufficient rest can cause our brains to operate in a way that is similar to being intoxicated. And this is not, generally speaking, a surprise as a piece of information. Uh, that's why sleep deprivation is a form of torture, of, of deliberate torture in situations where such a thing is practiced. But it's also a lot more benign and sort of present uh, in our lives than that. And and I think more insidious than that, because we might be like, nobody's depriving me of sleep on purpose to torture me, so well, it's irrelevant. But there's an aspect of this that I think many of us encounter. I don't know if you can remember, there was a series of ads that ran a few years ago as part of a, the sort of Be Undrunk uh, ad campaign that I think is still going on in different shapes. But I remember this particular series of ads for a couple of reasons. One is that they were in restaurant bathrooms uh, at locations that were unavoidable if you were using the facilities. And one of the ads featured an actor with whom I'm fairly familiar. So they kind of stuck in my head because I, you know, standing there in the bathroom looking at this ad going, I know you, <laughs> which is an interesting experience. But the photos, for those of you who might have missed them, or just in case they were different in different bathrooms, worked with this concept of how our self-image, the way we perceive and understand or think of ourselves, and what the way reality is can become mismatched when we're drunk. And the one that I remember best showed a disheveled but very pumped up, very sort of, you know, uh, spend a lot of time in the gym sort of uh, guy being visibly belligerent on one panel in the photograph and equally disarrayed but much smaller, less intimidating version of the same person on the second panel. And the first panel was this person's perception of themselves when they were intoxicated, and the second panel was the reality. So it was kind of like, fists up, I'm ready to take you on, buddy, let's take it outside, because I'm, I'm all that. And the other panel showed the reality, which is, you might be about to get uh, have the street wiped with you. Um, so you want to back off. This can be similar to what happens in our brains when we're not getting enough rest. For instance, sleep deprivation can make some of our most critical deep emotional brain centers more reactive to emotional events. The amygdala, which regulates aggression or relates to aggression and fear, and the striatum, which relates to reward and positive emotion, are especially affected when we don't get enough rest. When we don't get enough rest, those brain regions lose their connection to the prefrontal cortex, and the prefrontal cortex is what regulates those parts of our those other parts of our brain. Uh, Matt Walker uh, Walker is the associate professor of psychology at UC Berkeley, and he's the principal investigator at the Sleep and Neuroimaging Laboratory there. And he describes I, I like this metaphor. He describes the amygdala as our emotional gas pedal, and the prefrontal cortex as our emotional brake. 
So when we've had a good night's sleep, the connection between those deep emotional brain centers and our prefrontal cortex gets refreshed. It's, it's like it goes to the shop and it gets a tune-up and it's in good repair. And so when we hit the emotional breaks, when we need to deal with our emotions in a productive, conscious, deliberate way, we hit the brakes for something, the brakes work. And when we're too tired, when we're sleep-deprived, that's less likely to be the case because that connection hasn't been refreshed adequately. And so we might hit the brakes on an emotion and not, they don't communicate with the emotion. And so we just, we're just a runaway emotional train. Here's where the connection between the drunk guy and the urinal comes in. When we're sitting here right now, hopefully at least rested enough to think with some clarity, we might kind of examine this information and think, well, that, that all kind of, that makes sense, right? When I'm, when I'm rested, I might be able to kind of say something like, well, acknowledge something like, of course, when I'm, when I'm more tired, I'm more emotionally reactive. Yep, I'm de that's definitely the case. A little more of a shorter trigger. But when we're actually tired, we can't see, we cannot see that that is the case. We might think we have a grip on our reality, think we have a grip on our emotions, for example, but we don't. Our perception and reality don't match. And our brain's ability to accurately assess reality is deeply compromised when we're not adequately rested. And this fact, Hersey contends, is part of how the wider agenda and the more destructive agenda of human bodies as basically fodder for this relentless drive toward more profit, more accumulation, is sustained by having us normalize being exhausted, become so accustomed to our perspective being skewed that we think that that messed up experience is just the way things are, and even the way they must be for us to participate adequately and keep the world turning. There is, Hersey insists, another way, and it's rooted in what she calls sacred rest. Now, I feel like I should sort of pause after the use of that phrase, sacred rest, to note that the book that I'm talking about, Rest is Resistance, is not a religious book. Uh, Hersey's own story has as one of its cornerstones growing up in the black Christian community. Her father was an African-American preacher and so on and so forth. And, and there's lots about that that really informs her and she can talk about it. She's unapologetic about it. But in the same breath, even while she's able to see that experience as impacting, she can look at it with a critical lens and write about it as a factor in this conversation. The book itself, however, is not a religious book. It is a secular book. Now, her thinking, Hersey's thinking, insists that the notion of spirit, uppercase S, in her instance, the notion of spirit is essential to taking back our bodies from what she calls grind culture and taking rest seriously. But she does not, as a thinker or writer or leader in this, she does not insist that there is only one religious path to how that might be understood or experienced. And I think that's important information in our context here at the table where we're delving into all of this as part of exploring what we believe. Now, just to come back to that loss of perspective that I was talking about, when I encounter these kinds of measurable facts about just how the exhausted me might be unable to even assess my own reality well, I sometimes have an experience that's akin to taking a bite of something that my palate doesn't know what to do with or hearing something that I can't quite process. And that experience, I would, I would try to explain it this way. I can get part of the way there with the information and experience that I have. But to really engage, I have to stop. I have to reflect. I have to deliberate. I have to 
chew my cud a little, as my grandfather might have said. I have to bring the things that I've already taken in back into the front of my experience somehow and mull them over, really consider them. Sometimes, and pardon me if this gets a little too visceral, but sometimes it feels like I even need to take those things and expunge them. I need to spit them out and kind of cleanse my palate. I need to, I need to turn off the song and wait for a while before I give it another listen, to use a less messy metaphor. One place where all of this intersects with our reason for being as a community at the table, for existing to provide a space to explore what we believe, one place all of this intersects with that is that, at least from my vantage point, I learned a lot of my broken ideas about exhaustion being normal in the context of religion. Not a huge surprise when you think about it, uh, depending on how you encountered religion and the rest of life uh, in your formative years. For me, and I still cherish many aspects of this idea, there was this notion that if what you believe actually has any merit, it's going to change how you live your life. One of the things that makes it, reveals it as meritous is that, is that it, it, it changes how we intersect the, with the world, what we choose to do with our time, our money, our energy, our our emotions, our beliefs, all those things are integrated if they are valid. Otherwise, they're just sort of smoke and mirrors. Um, so so I, I still feel that way. I feel like our beliefs our beliefs need to guide how we live, or they're not really beliefs. They're, they're ideas we're thinking about, but we haven't really taken them in. So if what I believe in a religious context as I was growing up was given to me as a way of guiding my life, then certain notions about rest were integrated into that in a way that was, I, I see now, not ideal. So to be more specific about that, the notion that if you're not a bit sick and tired, then you're not working at capacity, that idea slid pretty smoothly into the teaching that if you're not so exhausted that you're on the edge of being sick, you're not doing enough for Jesus uh, or for the kingdom or for the ministry you work in or for the community of the faithful or whatever religious language got used for it. And it, that, that idea was, I see now, the normalization of exhaustion and a rather thorough instance of the culture of, and this very broad brush here, but I would say the culture of capitalism, what Hersey calls the grind culture, providing the basis for what I was being taught was the truth about God and God's plan for the world. To put it another way, and to place it into the context of an idea we've talked about before, it's a pretty obvious example of culture making religion, culture forming religion, rather than the other way around. It's the co-opting of spiritual beliefs by the predominant culture. In this case, the culture of, of business and of profit. Now, if we want to choose to work ourselves to death so we can have, in the famous words of the industrial capitalist uh, Rockefeller, just a little bit more, which was his answer to the question, how much is enough? If we want to operate that way, of course we can. If we want to import that same set of values and choose to understand them as being the way that God believes that humans should live, we can. We have some agency in this, but and here's where I find myself taking a bite of something less familiar. We can also challenge it. Let me offer a more particular example. 
we can start to ponder the possibility that, for instance, these are not small ideas, any of them. That's why they, that, that illustration of striking my palate the way that they do uh, is one that I used. We can start to ponder the possibility that radical individualism might not be a good way to understand what it means to be a human, never mind a healthy or well human. We might start out dining on that idea of being primarily and centrally an individual of, you know, you do you, and find ourselves wasting away as people. That that eating that diet is not actually nourishing us fully as human beings. And we find that we, we are needing to nourish some other kind of nourishment. That there's that there's no protein in our diet. That we that we need the nourishment of community. That we need the nourishment of interconnectedness. That radical individualism pinned to the profit motive in an exclusive way without balances is among other things laying waste to the planet. You know, like it, it's we don't have to look very far to see that. That's not working. So we start to have those experiences. We might start to ponder whether perhaps some of the systemic injustices, the ways in which the luxuries of the few depend on the perennial exhaustion of the many, we might start to consider the possibility that everything we choose, everything we do, has an impact on someone else. We are all connected. That's a belief that I, that I hold. Not everyone does, of course. I believe that that's not a very difficult belief to um, to support. I, I think that we can see our interconnectedness in the structures of the world around us, the ways in which we're connected by virtue of living in the same communities and working in shared office spaces and engaging with one another in schools and in neighborhoods and in places of business or at events that we attend or when we travel. The mythology that what we do and what we experience does not affect everyone around us, I believe, is a deeply damaging one. It's a way of living that disconnects us. It disconnects us from others, obviously, but it also, in less obvious but deeply impacting ways, can disconnect us from ourselves and from all the living world around us. Maybe this is one of the idea reasons why... Um, mythologies or views of the world, lenses on the world that insist on its interconnectedness. And I feel like in the Canadian conversation, many of these are being taught to us by Indigenous and First Nations voices, that those those pictures of the interconnectedness of everything resonate with us because we recognize in them a corrective if we've grown up with this idea of radical individualism and disconnection. This is, by the way, maybe not by the way, this is where an idea like no one is free until everyone is free a not uncommon phrase in the justice community, that's where that idea is grounded. We'll talk more about that another time. The, the, the notion of freedom and its relationship to our concepts of liberation, there's a relationship between those two things, but they're not the same thing. And, and the difference is an intriguing one. Well, again, for another time. In any case, understanding ourselves to be interconnected is essential to understanding what it will take to live in a world that is just and equitable. And that is no surprise, yet another huge thing to explore. Yet another, take a bite of it and go, hmm, that doesn't taste like what I usually eat, idea-wise. I need to I need to chew on this. So, rather than taking a nibble of something that we need to get a big chewy bite of, I am going to leave us for today with the words of one of near history's great champions of justice on this matter, Martin Luther King Jr., who said it this way, 
All people, said King, are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. Just a bracket here. This is not King's words. This is my reflection on that sentence. He would describe it as an inescapable network of mutuality. That doesn't mean we can't deny it. <laughs> the fact that he believed that it was inescapable doesn't mean we can't believe otherwise, does it? But this was his conviction. All people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. This gulf, between the, the gap between those things, is bridged by the sharing of resources. And he goes on to talk about how he's not just describing the rich giving to the poor. He's talking about ordinary people sharing resources with ordinary people. And resources doesn't just mean money. It means all of who we are and how we live. What that might look like in my life and yours, that seems to be, to me, like the bit that I at least need to continue to chew on and that I offer to you for your consideration. I would invite you to do the same uh, in the interest of many things, including making a more just, a more kind, and a more sustainable world for ourselves, for those around us, for the generations to come. I'm going to leave that there, because that feels like a big enough mouthful, at least for me. Maybe some of you have already kind of digested all of this, and, and you're, come on, Tim, get to the, get to the main course. Uh, we'll keep exploring together.